Coming to the end of another day, having had the opportunity to continue our practice of stabilizing heart, mental energy, gathering, learning to be a bit more spacious and allowing for how things actually are not how we would like them to be necessarily, or how they should be. Making contact with uh, our experience in a more spacious, kindly way. It's very tempting in this practice to, to judge ourselves depending upon what appears for us when uh, meditation, so many people talk about the meditation going well and not going so well. It seems to be something we, we get caught in quite a lot. And usually we equate going well when it's peaceful and spacious, light, and something wrong. We easily blame ourselves. Something's gone wrong because uh, we don't feel so light, we feel turbulence or resistance or confusion, or the mind is just all over the place. And if we get into a habit of judging our meditation upon what state's there, then it can feel like a roller coaster. It can feel like we're spun around. So seeing if we can shift from that tendency to actually honouring ourselves for cultivating the capacity just to be with how things are, whether they are pleasant or not, whether we feel the meditation is working or not, not looking so much for results in the states, which are very changeable and beyond our control mostly, but more to the qualities that are being cultivated in our capacity to be here a bit more fully, our capacity to be present, to be with that which is irritating or difficult, uncomfortable, without immediately rejecting or shifting or going off into a desire for how things should be, other than how they are, honouring our capacity just to perhaps have moments of kindness towards this body and mind, towards our being. There's so um, much harshness that we carry towards, towards our body and mind, so much judgment. And moments when we can soften around that, moments when we can allow ourselves to be as we are, something to honour. So this few days we've been cultivating this capacity, this ability to be with things, to stay with the silence, the structure, to enter the template that Kirisara was talking about, the temple, boundaries, the limitations, in a way not to feel oppressed by them or rebellious within them, but for the 
sake of being able to reflect on our, on our experience. Today we were <coughs> looking more at uh, noticing the space within which it's all happening, within which the moods and the feelings and the, the morning and the eating and the walking, the bathing, the sitting, the thoughts, the perceptions, the sensations, the afternoon, the trees, the clouds, the talking in the groups or the not talking, rather than being so mesmerized by the forms and the shifting, changing nature of them, so compelled by that which we like or feel uncomfortable with, attracted to, repelled by, beginning to notice more the space within which the forms are appearing, the space of the heart itself sense of presence, the sense of that which is listening, this is a thread that, uh, that is there, whether what we're listening to is a, a demon that's come to visit us, an angry, powerful energy, rages, or whether it's an angel that comes tinkling, celestial music, appearing on our doorstep. This tendency to, when a demon appears, to get freaked out. When the angels appear to want them to stay. But being able to find, to know that which transcends, without pushing away, without grasping angels and demons, that which is just listening, receiving, here, present, spacious getting a feeling for the mind in, in that capacity, the space of the heart, the natural heart, and helping us to, to do this, to access this, noticing the ending of things a little more, maybe the dissolving, rather than being so compelled by the qualities of what appears, just noticing the sounds as they cease, and then just ceasing into the silence. Noticing the thoughts, those are more difficult sometimes to, to track. Beginning, beginning to be able to notice the spaciousness around thought, or the thought perhaps that's so compelling, how it also dissolves the breath constantly arising and passing back into this spacious presence. It takes some attunement of attention to notice that because we're so enchanted and mesmerized by form, by becoming, by getting somewhere, something very compelling or, or driven, compulsive about this feeling of moving towards the future. Somewhere other than here and now, somewhere that we need to get to. Whether it's 
on a more active level, somewhere we're going to go when we when the retreat's finished, or things that we need to do, or, or on a more subtle, meditative level, of a particular kind of state that we need to get into. Sometimes this feeling of being pushed, something pushing us, compelling us into the future is, is uh, unrelenting. Never, as uh, Kitty Sarah was saying last night, the dog with the mange, never allowing us to rest here. Always uh, running. Something to get to that's not here already. Something to resolve, something to finish. And the delusion in that is that it feels so right, it feels so real. We don't really see it for that. We, we, it feels like something we need to follow. When I get there, when I get this, when this is gone, then it will be okay. And before we know it, we've become ages on our deathbed, and there's still this feeling. When I get there, it will be okay. So we don't really see that movement of the heart, we, we see it as something we need to become born into and shaped by, shapes us, we become it, we become that movement that's constantly getting somewhere else. The Buddha called this the, the endless cycle of samsara, the endless cycle of that which moves us from one place to another. Restlessness, a kind of restlessness seeking for something. And the taste of that, the, the profound taste of the sansara is the feeling of uncertainty. It's always based upon it's not able to be settled. The shifting sand, the deep feeling of the uncertain. The Buddha said it because you and I have, we have all traversed these realms of samsara, this endless wandering we've been involved in this through not understanding four things, through a lack of a certain kind of understanding that keeps us compelled in this way, keeps us driven in this way, keeps us from a profound knowing of peacefulness profound knowing of restfulness because of not understanding four things. And then he proceeded to lay out um, his core teaching on the Four Noble Truths, the most beautiful and succinct and accessible teaching of awakening that one can encounter. Tonight or tomorrow night, I'm not sure which is the Sala Puja, the month of Asala, the month of July, which is uh, traditionally recognized as the time to remember this teaching. When the Buddha gave this teaching, so it's recorded on this particular full moon of July. After his enlightenment, under the Bodhi tree, Budgaya, 2,546 years ago or so. In fact, at first he was a very 
reluctant teacher. He was very, um, he wasn't that keen to, to go out and try and communicate what he'd understood. I think anyone in their right mind would be a reluctant Dharma teacher, quite frankly. <laughs> <laughs> Bit of a strange predicament. <laughs> Certainly nothing to get very zealous about, kind of missionary about. And in fact, the Buddha encouraged um, teaching really to appear when there was a, a request for it, so that there's not this sense of going out to convert. But there can, the Dharma can only arise when there's an opening, really, when there's a receptivity. Again, Charlie used to say that sometimes he would go to a teaching engagement and nothing would happen. He couldn't find a word to say. And he realized that, in fact, there was no receptivity. And other times, no one would be particularly interested in a Dharma talk and he couldn't stop speaking. <laughs> There's some energetic communication, some opening. And the Dharma is not really a personal possession. It's not one person teaching another person, but it's a dynamic that happens when there's openness and receptivity. It allows something to flow. We experienced in our small groups people speaking in an authentic way their experience of the Dharma, whether it's unsure, uncertain, or places of confidence. And there's something very precious and beautiful about that very vulnerable about that. Not an easy thing to do, but the more we speak from that place, the more it becomes integrated in us. Our relationship to truth, to Dharma, it can flow, we can get to recognize the energy of it. But often when we first speak from that place, it can feel quite frightening, quite scary. So the Buddha was quite reluctant first impulse was to, to actually withdraw from the world of teaching or communicating. Um, and he was actually quite right. It was, as it turned out, it was quite a hassle <laughs> to teach. It wasn't something that people appreciated. There were lots of challenges. But he realized that there were those, there were those of the little dust, there was the possibility of something being understood, and so he ventured forth to give his first teachings. One of the first teachings that he laid out was this teaching on the, the four truths. But in fact, the very first teaching he gave, even before this, was when he met someone along the road, and the person came up to that came up to the Buddha and, and said to him, oh, you, you look very radiant, you, you look very peaceful. What, you know, how come? What, what are you about? He was attracted to the presence, the aura of the Buddha. I mean, it must have been pretty phenomenal to meet the Buddha after his awakening. And the Buddha's very first utterance was something to the effect that well, I am I'm a Buddha, I'm a world transcender, I'm an all-enlightened one. 
I've done it. And, and uh, it wasn't his most successful teaching because the guy basically said, well, nice for you, but what can I do about that? And, and walked on. I mean, he wasn't, Buddha wasn't speaking from an ego place, he was speaking from a place of truth. That's what we are when we know our being. We know that, that's an utterance of truth. But it didn't give the person much room or much space to reflect. And sometimes I, I find that when I meet non-dual teachers, it's a, sometimes it doesn't allow for me personally a lot of space, not that their utterance isn't true, but it doesn't give the space to reflect. It basically points a lot to the person themselves. Do you believe them or don't you? Is it true or isn't it? Do I follow them or not? So then the Buddha considered another way of laying out the truth rather than pointing to himself and pointing to the Dharma and encouraging people to reflect for themselves which I find is quite a masterful way to approach the communication of the activity of awakening because it leaves uh, a sense of empowerment for the individual to try this out not a question of believing or disbelieving a person but to actually explore for oneself. And so the Buddha, when he laid out his first teaching that was more accessible in the shape of the Four Noble Truths, his first utterance wasn't, I'm enlightened, but there is suffering. There is this experience of dukkha, and, and in many ways that's far more accessible for us. It's not an end point, but it's, a, it's an entry point. It's something that we can all share. And to say there's enlightenment, I mean, kind of doesn't give us a lot of ground to stand on. So in the, the um, laying out of this first truth, there's this experience of dukkha, something that we all have, we all share every day of our lives, to whatever degree. It's called dukkha dukkha, which means just inherent and compounded phenomena. Sankara dukkha, there is this dis ease, there is this experience of uncomfortableness, unsatisfactoriness sometimes. Dukkha of aging, dying, these things that are part of the natural flow of things. It's a kind of dukkha one can't really avoid, just there heaviness, dullness, even the Buddha had back aches and headaches and this kind of thing, experience of body not being well. The dukkha of things dissolving, the nature of sankara is that it's always dissolving as a certain kind of dukkha in that. But the dukkha that the Buddha pointed to, which is something we generate from not understanding from ignorance is something that we can actually contemplate in a way that frees us from perpetuating this experience of unnecessary suffering. So there are some forms of dukkha that 
our suffering or discontent or unsatisfactoriness that we actually can contemplate rather than just react to. So I find this a very a teaching that gives a great sense of relief because often when, when there's dukkha or there's suffering or struggle we take it very personally we, we feel we're a saviour almost so I'm suffering because I'm doing something wrong or we, we feel that maybe I'm not doing anything wrong but the world around me is doing something wrong and that's why I'm suffering if it's not that then we, we can sometimes become a great sufferer. Look at me, how much I'm suffering. I'm suffering more than you. More spiritual point. So we have these very distorted relationships to the experience of dukkha. We personalise it and create a strong sense of self and identity and struggle with it. Or we repress it or project it. So the Buddha encouraged this first noble truth. It's just a statement. It's not a judgment value. Sometimes people they were Buddhism says the world is just a part of suffering, what a negative teaching. But that's not how it was articulated, it was more there is this experience of unsatisfactoriness, there is this thirsting, there is this feeling of never being at ease. And this experience needs to be turned to, to be understood, to be recognised for what it is not judged, not repressed, not clung to, but just to be turned to, a very simple practice, a very simple remedy or um, encouragement in relationship to this experience. We spend so much of our energy just trying to avoid the fact that we're sitting here with a mind that's not doing what we want it to do. Thoughts that are thoughts that we can't control. Feelings when we wake up in the morning feel heavy. Struggle. Struggle of life. So this, when we actually allow our attention, the same attention that we've been developing with the breath, with body, to just meet this experience of dukkha. Just receive it in a very simple way. There's a certain relief about that. There's a certain honesty, authenticity about that. So I think not a permanent state, but it's something that certainly through a lifetime we can actually learn to create a different relationship with that experience. See it as an opportunity. See it as a gateway, as a doorway to a more profound investigation of how the Buddha presented it. And when we're constantly avoiding that experience and that gateway doesn't appear for us. As I call that which is ennobled, that which has a potential, that which has a possibility.
a very interesting moment sometimes in life when we can't move anymore away from this experience. We can't deny it, we can't project it, we can't run away, we can't change the world around us to make it go away. Uh, and when we can just actually open to that experience of dukkha, allow it to be there, allow the mind and heart to receive it. This kind of dukkha that we, the sense of suffering that we project onto the world or onto ourselves comes from a state of not seeing clearly the nature of things as they really are. So the second truth is really encouraging us to look more closely at what actually generates this experience. There's something that we do that generates unnecessary suffering for ourselves through our lack of understanding of change, through all the assumptions that we make about ourselves in the world, through the should and shouldn't that we project onto the body and mind, onto the world around us. When we don't really embrace the experience of dukkha while we're constantly projecting it out or repressing it, then it doesn't give us the opportunity to look more closely. Well, if, if there's a, that experience now, here and now, what am I doing to help generate that? Usually it boils down to a few different things that we've been reflecting on. Usually there's the assumption that something is here that shouldn't be here, or we want something that isn't here. Something that we, we're looking for that isn't here. Or maybe it is here, we haven't looked in a, quite the right way. So the second piece is where it talks about this first, this first thing that we have, this constant agitation like the dog with the mange, this looking in a particular way that doesn't really bring the ending of dukkha, but just continually agitates. wanting to find a sense of union, wanting to find a sense of permanence, lasting pleasure, lasting peace through the, the world of the senses, when the nature of the senses themselves are to constantly change and shift. There's nothing, again, not a judgment value on the, the world of the, the sensory experience, the world of sight, feeling, sound, thought, touch, taste, but when there's this demand that I find my ultimate nature through the uh, sensory experience, then we, we feel this disappointment. We feel this dying away. We feel this loss. There for a moment and then it shifts. I'm wanting to... Uh, become something, this first to become in a way that gives us a sense of stability, to become our ambitions, to become whatever we want to become. Become more successful, 
get our projects done, to become wiser. There's this kind of energy of looking for some way of being that will bring us completion. This is this this kind of thirsting or movement to become is something that generates that sense of dissatisfaction here and now. Or not wanting whatever's here not to be here, the pushing away, the struggle of how it is in this moment. So this we don't really this energy of tanha or desire that we've been reflecting on, if it's not very conscious, we get shaped, we literally become what we desire, we get shaped by that, our life becomes shaped by unconscious desires and aversions. We become uh, what we think we want. So in this, this second admonition of Buddha said, with this energy, it's not to crush it, not to judge it, we need to feel it, we need to allow ourselves to feel it fully for the sake of being able to understand it, to make it more conscious. What is this movement that's constantly wanting to get somewhere, wanting to push away what's here? When we believe that we're in the roller coaster, we're in samsara, no stability. But what, what happens in a moment of just knowing it as that? So the admonition the Buddha gave is this Tanha, this nature of wanting and not wanting, needs to be let be or let go of, not to be followed. Let it be. You can feel it, you can feel it so powerfully sometimes in the body, in the mind. In our capacity to bring awareness, to bring attention, we can just let it be. That which is letting it be isn't the movement of, of wanting and not wanting. It just is. Just here, we found our resting place, we found the ground of our being. Not being moved. If we wish, we can perhaps use that energy more consciously, say, well, I do need to move, I do need to engage. But it's a conscious relationship. It's not the one that's unconscious and driven. One that we say, well, we need this energy, let me use it and direct it in a more conscious way. It's hard to do that unless we really begin to know, what is this? What is this thirsting? What is this thing that's always seeking? Looking outward, looking to the next thing, looking to the future, for our peacefulness, for our sense of stability. A moment of just seeing that, a moment of just knowing that without becoming it is a, is a very powerful moment. It breaks the pattern, it breaks the cycle, it, it makes a chink in the, in the wheel of samsara. It's like putting a spoke in the, in the wheel. Kind of a space suddenly, where you just knew yourself as your ambitions, as your projects, as your aversions, as your struggles. You get a moment of noticing, well, there's space here, there's being here, in fact that's peaceful. What is here is actually already peaceful. 
So it's not necessarily that the world of form and the world of change at all is suffering. It's our relationship to it. It's our demand. It's our it's our lack of um, wisdom in relationship to how things actually are. We ask the world to be other than it can be. We ask our bodies and minds to be more than they can be. To give us what they what it can't give us. Give us permanence, give us peace, give us stability. We ask our relationships to do that. And once we realise that in fact the world of form, by its very nature, becoming otherwise dissolving all the time, then rather than that unconscious demand, that ignorance that we project our struggle, our suffering, we can appreciate it for what it is. We can allow it to be as it is begins to open us to the third noble truth. The mind is not grasping anymore, not rejecting anymore, then what becomes revealed is the underlying timeless peaceful nature that's just here. The depth of our being. The silence, the quietness, the presence, which is what always is. In the world of form, the world of change, the worries, the fears that become have become so strongly shaped around the sense of self we struggle with, bits that we like, the bits that we don't like, it all becomes more more just nature, dharma, or as in the Chinese tradition they call it wonderful existence. Just appearing according to its own nature and dissolving again back into presence, back into silence. So this third noble truth, the Buddha said there is that which is the cessation of suffering. There is the cessation of dukkha. And that's to be realized. It's not that we have to uh, go and find it somewhere. Go mine it in a mine, it's something to just turn to, something to be realized, to be known. It doesn't depend on when we've got our, all our egos sorted out, find out all our neuroses and pathologies. When we don't feel unconfident anymore, when we feel light, bright, it doesn't really depend upon what state is there, whatever's apparent is there. Within whatever appears, the demons or the angels, there's always the possibility of being able to know that which is not changing, to realize that which is, just is, the ground of our being, the ground of the mind itself, that which is just present, aware, listening, bright, luminous, within which all arises and passes, this third noble truth. When the mind is not grasping, we have moments of just knowing that, knowing the peacefulness of that. It's not to say that sometimes the third noble truth, cessation, sounds like everything's got to stop. We don't know peace until there's no movement. All activity must stop, all movement of mind must stop, all karmic formation must stop. It's uh, unrealistic. This is nature of form, 
to move and to change and to shift. There can still be the knowing of the peaceful heart, the knowing of non-grasping within our own karmic predicament unfolding. of our activity, what we do, who we are, how we manifest as individuals in this world. All of that happens, has to happen. But can we get a feeling for the heart, the mind, not grasping so much, not rejecting so much, but being able to know its own stability, its own presence, its own peacefulness, its own quietude. These retreats, retreats are very wonderful in terms of them giving us the possibility of having moments or tastes of that. It takes a lot of patience to endure sometimes the, the mind, the restlessness, the seeking, the wanting to get somewhere, the feeling of being propelled all the time into feeling that it's all going to be alright when I sort it all out in the future. Or it's all going to be alright when this whatever's here isn't here anymore. It takes patience to endure that movement, that tanha, to get to little by little know the mechanism of it, to not be so deluded by it. To let it be. You don't have to crush it, just let it be, do its thing. Interesting. There's a wonderful reading from the Sutta Nipatas, one of the earliest records of the discourses of the Buddha. I find it's a very nice text to read. And it's a follow-on one from the one Kisara read last night. Different Brahmins coming to ask the Buddha various questions. This is Jatukani's question. You... Master, rule desire and pleasure like the sun, with heat and light, rules and controls the earth. I have only a little understanding, sir, and you are a globe full of wisdom. Tell me how to find and know the way of giving up this world of birth and death, this world of samsara. Where is the escape hatch? The Buddha replied to Jatukani, Lose the greed for pleasure. See how letting the world be is peacefulness. There is nothing that you need to hold on to and there is nothing that you need to push away. Dry up the remains of your past and have nothing for your future. If you do not cling to the present even, then you can go from place to place in peace. Okay, so let's leave it there for tonight. And the man in the water, the
for this evening. Many different kinds of beings are caught in the wheel of suffering. Come, as we meditate, we become more sensitive not only to perhaps our own struggles but to realize the enormity of dukkha within, the, within this realm, within the worlds around us. Maybe share, maybe dedicate any punya, any blessings from our practice today. Dedicate that for the welfare of all beings wherever they dwell, in the realms above. Dharma protectors, Dharma protectors of Sky House, enlightened ones, maybe dedicate any punya, any blessings to those that support this Dharma practice place, this way place. And all those that have supported it, may they be well and happy, free from suffering. Our families and friends, work associates, all those beings within the human realm, may we dedicate in punya and to those animals, cows around us that we've been hearing and listening to suffering. All beings, whatever form they appear within, may we dedicate our practice to them, may they be well, may they be happy, may they be free from suffering.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.